Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. Today I will be speaking with Katherine Russell, professor of cinema at Concordia University, about her book, Archivology, Walter Benjamin and Archival Film Practices. The book was published in 2018 by Duke University Press. Catherine describes archivology as the reuse and repurposing of archival sound and moving images. We discuss German philosopher Walter Benjamin and his related writing on her concepts, as well as specific films that are useful examples. Welcome, Catherine Russell. Hey, Joel. So we're talking about your book, Archivology, Walter Benjamin and Archival Film Practices. Um... Obviously, we're going to talk in depth about the book, but uh, before we do that, I always like to give listeners a better idea of the person they're hearing about, you know, your your background. Uh, I know you teach film uh, studies at in Canada, so uh, give everybody a chance to get more information about you, uh, including anything else you've written, if there's anything specific you want to point people to. So that would be great to start with. Okay, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about this book. I really appreciate it. Um, So this is uh, actually the fifth book that I've written, um, and it it actually harks back to a publication that came out in 1999 called Experimental Ethnography. And uh, that book was, uh, the subtitle is The Work of Film in the Age of Video. And in that book, I was dealing with experimental film and its convergence with uh, ethnographic film and anthropology. So that was in 1999. And then I kind of stepped away from that body of work and wrote two books on Japanese cinema. Uh, One of them is called Naruse Nikkyo, New Women of the Silent Screen. And uh, that was a... uh, a publication with Duke University Press on a uh, Japanese director who made women's films throughout the 20th century, basically. And uh, then I wrote a second book on Japanese film and, and uh, about the masterpieces of Japanese film, Kurosawa, Naruse, Ozu, uh, Ichikawa, but from a cultural studies point of view, uh, from a women's point of view as well. And then I thought I wanted to go back to writing about experimental film, which I had kind of left since 1999, um, partly because people were beginning to read experimental ethnography, and it seemed to be very relevant to what independent filmmakers are doing uh, today. And uh, one chapter of that book, Experimental Ethnography, was called um, Archival Apocalypse. And I had a very 
pessimistic view of uh, found footage filmmaking at that time. I was sort of looking at it as the end of history. Found footage filmmaking has been around for a very long time, uh, but I was not certain what its potential was for cultural studies, for anthropology, for thinking about uh, culture and identities and so on. And um, since that time, a lot has changed in my thinking about found footage films and also in its role, its role in culture. And I think it has a lot to do with new technologies that have made recycling film a very much part of our everyday lives, a part of mainstream culture in, in terms of YouTube mashups and so on. And I wanted to go back to that question I had about found footage filmmaking and the way that independent filmmakers were using it, which I now understood better as being a way of creating new knowledge about history and that filmmakers have the tools to bring history, film history alive and accessible. And so that's what motivated uh, this, this new book. And throughout this process, I've been teaching, and it's really, I think, uh, fortunate uh, that I am able to teach in a film studies program where we have graduate classes in film studies. And so I've been teaching PhD students and I often work out my ideas in the classroom. And so I, I, I do thank them in the introduction uh, of my book for their patience and their contributions to thinking. But I think it's for me the best way when you get a certain kind of problematic like that uh, to show the films in, in, in that I'm interested in in the class and get the responses of students and their input and also read through the material, read through these Benjamin texts uh, together with students and kind of brainstorm what they can mean for film studies. So that's kind of the context of uh, this particular book. And, and your PhD from New York University, what was your, uh, what was your area of study? Well, that was a long time ago, and I uh, produced a book actually from that work, which is called Narrative Mortality, Death, Closure, and New Wave Cinemas, which was published by um, University of Minnesota Press. And um, that is about new wave cinemas and a little bit of like Fritz Lang. Uh, it's around the question of why do films end with death? <laughs> uh, so I, I have an interest, a longstanding interest in narrative and narrative film. And that's my career tends to go back and forth. And so the Naruse book I mentioned before, Japanese cinema, that's all narrative cinema. And I'm interested in questions of narrativity and its relationship to culture and uh, society and, and political history. Uh, and, but I'm also interested in experimental film, non-narrative film. And so uh, my publishing career tends to bounce back and forth between these two uh, interests. And funnily enough, there's a way in which uh, my, I, I, one of the, the concepts that's introduced in the new book, Archivology, is called cine, critical cinephilia. And with the idea of critical cinephilia is that many filmmakers are going back to Hollywood films and classic cinema in general and breaking it up into pieces uh, to create new insights into film history. So my, my cinephiliac interest in classical cinema is now kind of converging finally <laughs> with my interest in non-narrative experimental film. Well, it sounds like this has been a long, I mean, it, it's good that, as you point out, that you're in a position where as a, 
in your teaching or, or you know your work with PhD students that you've been able to continually work within your ideas and and work them out. So yes, I think your your students definitely deserve the the, the credit you give them because you get immediate feedback for something like that. Sometimes when you write a book or even if you're writing a journal article or a paper even for a conference until you actually present it you don't get feedback that 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 helps and in this case you definitely seem to be getting some help with that so let's define the word archivology obviously the book you you, you know you've used the you know from reading through some things it's not a new term for you i mean you've used it in a couple of places already, but this is where you're really putting your ideas together. Uh, the the name sort of you know it's pretty obvious from the from the word archivology you know just simple English that the word archive is very important and the ology part sort of puts it together use of archive that kind of thing. But for your purposes, how would you discuss the idea of what archivology is? Well, it's a good question. Eh? Um, I don't know if I ever actually offer a concrete definition. I think it's something of an open term that perhaps other people might find useful. Uh, for me, it is precisely the idea of uh, using archives, filmmakers using film archives, but more precisely as, as a kind of a language. Um, in which pieces of films, other films made in the past, can be recombined to create new films, which have new insights into history, create new effects, uh, and w which is something that's been going on for a long time. Found footage filmmakers have been doing this since, I mean, the first example in my book is 1936 with uh, Joseph Cornell's film, Rose Hobart. But uh, I'm interested in thinking about this process as having something to do with the film archive and making it legible is one of the Benjaminian terms that recurs throughout this book. And that's one of the concepts that of his that I like. And he means by this something to do with the fact that may, maybe some texts uh, were not completely legible in their own day. And with the benefit of hindsight, from our perspective, given our particular critical moment in the year 2018, uh, we, we get new insights. We see new things in old films. They become legible in new ways, which is also to say that films have more than one meaning. Uh, we know that. Uh, but uh, the idea of legibility has to do with reading and textuality and language. And so we're, I'm thinking about filmmakers who take apart old films, put them together to create new meanings, new knowledge. Um, and there's, I think this is in keeping with um, other work that's going on in cultural studies these days, having to do with affect and the senses and the idea that there's many forms of knowledge, uh, that they're not all, not all the knowledge is reducible to a set of facts or a set of data, but knowledge can have a sensory component to it. And of course, film, whether it's fiction film or documentary film, uh, has the ability to capture something of the sensory environment of the past. Obviously, it's the senses of uh, hearing and senses of uh, sight, but you also get a larger, more am amorphous sense of the past and its sensibilities um, in film history. And I'm talking about all film history, including fic fiction alongside documentary. Yeah, I would think that if I was thinking of the term, you know, just in general, without under, you know, without any reading in advance, I would think most, most likely of documentaries. But uh, as you point out, it's not just, it can also be a narrative and of course, experimental films that these kind of things uh, can be used or come kind of thing can be done and 
And, and so, uh, but I can also understand how these concepts are not new as far as use is concerned. It's, it's just a different, uh, a more complex, a complex, complex, excuse me, more complexity involved in reviewing how uh, this all can come together. Right, exactly. So the person who actually, like I say, is mentioned in the title and, and obviously is the, is the focus in many ways, Walter Benjamin. Now, I know he's German, so I'm assuming we're using the anglicized version of his name. I hope I didn't haven't spent all this time talking about somebody with uh, <laughs> and I'm pronouncing incorrectly based on what you're using used to. But uh, he's somebody I know you've uh, written about before in, in in other way in other formats. But who was he? And and give us a little bit of background. I know there's a lot, so I'm not expecting you to to tell me the entire read the entire book, but just to give us a little bit of understanding of how he fits into into your your ideas. Okay. Yes. Yeah, we would need a couple of hours, really, to get a handle on Walter Benjamin. I, I say Walter Benjamin, but Jared, perfectly okay to say Benjamin. Um, it's just habit that I say um, But, uh, yeah, he was, um, he was a writer, theorist. Uh, he was one of, I would say, one of the first cultural studies writers, theorists, uh, who did most of his writing through the 1920s and 30s in, in Europe. He was, his biography is really fascinating. He was, he traveled a lot. He was in exile um, after 1933. Uh, he grew up in Berlin and then was really kind of a migrant in Europe throughout the 1930s. Um, and he was never he never worked in a university, although he did do a, a, a doctoral, what we would call a doctoral degree. So it's a very complicated story why he didn't get an academic job, but he didn't. Walter Benjamin had to support himself during the 1920s and 30s, basically as a freelance writer and critic, which meant that he wrote a lot of essays, a lot, and large, uh, long essays, very dense philosophical essays, as well as film reviews. He did radio broadcasts. He wrote diaries. He was a voracious writer. And he wrote about a, quite a large number of things. Um, and he was one of the founding figures of the Frankfurt School, which were a group of philosophers who were very influenced by Marxism, but also understood that uh, uh, polit politics and aesthetics uh, go together and you need to study them together and think about them together. And not the aesthetic realm was not independent of the political realm. And this was very much where Benjamin is, is coming from. Um, but he was not like a consistent sort of philosopher type. And for that reason, he's had a very checkered, troubled trajectory in terms of where he fits within the academia today. Um, uh, philosophers have a little bit of a hard time with him, uh, and yet, and he's sort of mostly appreciated by people in liter literary studies and film studies and media studies. And in fact, I found that he's even most appreciated by artists and filmmakers because he himself was as much a poet as he was a philosopher. Uh, he was very, very, um, inspired and, and acknowledged that he was inspired by the surrealists. And so he doubles back on himself a lot. He contradicts himself. And the other thing is that history was changing as he was writing. So it's made him very difficult to really get a handle on because his ideas changed as film became more clearly part of the uh, fascist enterprise and some of his really utopian ideas about film uh, vanished before his eyes <laughs> as it became a, a propaganda tool uh, for the fascists. And so he's very interesting in the way that he 
he em- embraces ambivalence. He thinks about ambivalence, how images and films can be produced for one reason, uh, but read in another for in another way that we really need to do this a lot of the time because uh, mainstream film is an instrument of capital, uh, and so it's the obligation of the avant-garde to to brush history against the grain and think against some of the the tendencies of the way that film is used. Um, at the same time, he wrote, he didn't actually, the funny thing is he didn't write a lot about film. He wrote more about literature. He wrote about theater. He wrote about many things. My my work was very much enhanced and, and helped by the work of Miriam Hansen. She's a, a film scholar who passed away uh, just a few years ago. And and her last text uh, before she, she passed away was a very important um, analysis of Benjamin's writings on film. She also wrote a, about Adorno and Krakauer, who were two contemporaries of uh, Benjamin and colleagues. Uh, uh, but she, and because she is a, uh, she speaks German and she was able to go into the complexity of Benjamin's writing, which is another thing, reading him in English, uh, we're somewhat uh, at a disadvantage. Anyway, she she tried to get at uh, really what he meant, and so I, I do rely on her work a lot, but at the same time, Benjamin's writing is open that it lends itself to many interpretations. <laughs> so I'm kind of like not necessarily disagreeing with her, uh, but I think uh, taking a slightly different path and there's so much of his work to draw on that if you take a different path, there's other texts that you can go through. And there's a, there's a huge amount of secondary literature, in addition to Hansen, of commentators from many, many different disciplines who have uh, provided their own analyses of Benjamin. And so I'm kind of drawing on them as, as well. So... Um, yeah, that's a little, that's about, I mean, there's more to be said. I mean, the other thing about Benjamin uh, that, that is that is important is that he he died in 1940 at the, uh, probably, probably at the hands of the fascists. It's very difficult uh, to know, but the story is that he committed suicide um, while escaping uh, Europe uh, because he believed that he was going to be, um, arrested and uh, deported uh, the next morning. So it's a kind of a mysterious death, uh, but it's become a kind of a figure for, you know, thinking through the, the, the terrors of that time, but also living through it, really. I mean, he, he could have he left Europe earlier. Supposedly there's conflicting stories, but he, uh, he, he really, well, he stayed too long, basically. Yeah, that's from some of the little bit of reading I tried to do to give myself a little bit of understanding was that uh, clearly he was uh, caught up in that period, that terrible period where a lot of artists and, and other intellectuals, uh, if they were especially of, of German descent or German, uh, found themselves... Uh, you know, being considered enemies of the state, so to speak, to put it any other way. And unfortunately, it sounds like uh, he was definitely an example of that. Yes. So, so, yeah, he's an interesting figure for our times now. I mean, <laughs> he's just a very uh, omniscient kind of figure right now. So the book, the subtitle... Uh, it talks about him and archival film practices. Um, obviously, we're talking a very theoretical concept as far as it, because that's, you know, he was writing, you know, the type of writing he did. But mm-hmm. I'm assuming that there are ways that you can take what he wrote in your studies and bring it into actual uh uh, film work that's been created or is you know has has actually been made, and, and you talk a little bit about some specific filmmakers in your book. Can you give us some examples of ways in which your study of of of, ben, of his work 
has helped you um, make some discoveries within film? Well, <laughs> um, that's make some discoveries. I guess um, I, I don't know if I discovered anything, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I, I've written about some filmmakers uh, that I, I find that his ideas enable me to look at their films in a new light and, and a kind of a critical light and to explore uh, what they're doing. Um, and there's quite a number of filmmakers, a range of filmmakers that are discussed in the book. Uh, but um, for example, um, there's a, a German director called Gustav Deutsch, and I did not discover him. He's very well known. No, I guess <laughs> and, you're right. I'm using that word incorrectly. I guess what I'm yeah. saying that new insights, how's that? And exactly. Some insights. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and Deutsch uh, has, he's, a, he's a, you know, made many, many films over many years. And he has some really interesting kind of collaborations with, with film archives, official archives like the Netherlands Archive and the Vienna Archive and, and so on. And they open up their doors to him and he's able to go in and, and work through. They've got, you know, cans and cans and cans, hours and hours and hours of footage, you know, of films that were shot uh, during the silent period by filmmakers who traveled the world. Um, and where, you know, what, what, what's happening with these films, you know, no, without a context, nobody's going to watch them. And yet it's important that we have those records and we have those documents of what the world looked like, um, and what those kinds of exchanges were between cameramen and, uh, and people in different parts of the world. Um, and so Deutsch, uh, basically extracts images from those films and and puts them together into uh, new films. So the, he, I mean, he's done. He he has a he has a huge oeuvre. I only really write about one of his uh, pieces, which is called World Mirror Cinema, and uh, that was made in two thousand and five. Uh, and uh, it's really quite remarkable how he uses this material and gives us insights into three different cities uh, in the silent period, roughly between 1910 and 1930. Um, so uh, how does Benjamin help us to understand this? Um, let me see. Um, yeah, I mean, Benjamin's own work also worked this way. Sometimes, like his famous book, The Arcades Project, was developed by sitting in the uh, Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris and actually copying out fragments of the things that he read. And he made um, an archive, he made his own archive in a sense by, by, with filing cards. And he organized these into sets. And uh, this, is, this, this collection of fragments, fragmented texts, became the work that we now call the Arcades Project, which is a study of 19th century Paris. And so his methodology was very much a matter of quotation. And through those quotations sewn together, he's creating a very different perspective on uh, the, 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 uh, the life and times of, of, uh, of Paris. And, and part of his, his objective in the Arcades Project was to say that uh, there was a kind of a missed opportunity. Modernity was a missed opportunity, that there was so much promise in the new technologies, and there was a lot of revolutionary discourse and talk going on about a new society that could be brought about with these new technologies. Uh, and yet, uh, by the 20th century, very clearly, it was not to be. It was all lost. And he's writing very specifically uh, in Paris during the 30s, during the Nazi occupation. Um, so when we you know, take those kinds of ideas and think about what, what, what is Deutsch doing, um, you know, he's looking back at these old, these old films, he's quoting them, 
and, and extracting them. Um, and, and one arguably gets the same kind of impression about the potential, the potential of modernity in these cities. Like I think the cities that uh, are, are documented in, in World Mirror Cinema are Vienna, Porto in Portugal, and uh, Soriana in Indonesia. And um, yeah, sort of thinking through what technology meant for these communities. And there's a very strong sense of its potential for social transformation. Just, it's a kind of a subtle way of, of, of looking at it, but um, that's certainly one of the effects. And we know now, especially in a place like Soriana, Indonesia, that that potential has, has really failed to bring about a completely transformed, uh, socially equal kind of uh, uh, society. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So one of the things you talk about uh, early on, and, and, and we, we mentioned it briefly going by at the beginning, the concept of found footage, and even though one of the points you make is that you're not really, that's not your point, that's not what you're trying to write about is, is that concept, but it, you, you do sort of indicate there are some aspects of it that uh, are somewhat... Um, related to the concept even though i would think most people would understand it let's real quickly what would you how would you define found footage film a found footage film as a concept uh well yeah i mean it's found footage is still i think of, of interest and probably you could call all a film like world mirror cinema an example of found footage uh, it, it conventionally means the reworking of old footage shot by other people, mostly, but not always, uh, reassembling it into a new film. And the canonical example of a found footage filmmaker was Bruce Conner, and uh, he uh, allegedly found scraps of film in garbage bins outside studios, for example, outtakes. And I do write about uh, Morgan Fisher, who also worked this way often, um, you know, working on the margins of the film industry and finding the bits and pieces that are thrown, in, thrown out <laughs> and re reusing them, sewing them together to make uh, an experimental film. And uh, but there, there's many there's many types of found footage. I wrote a book a long time ago, which I didn't mention. One of the first things that I wrote uh, when I was a graduate student is on a Canadian filmmaker named David Rimmer. And David Rimmer, like many uh, filmmakers in the in the 70s, would take fragments of old films and rework them under the optical printer so that he would kind of take them apart and just use a few frames and loop them over and over and over again and really kind of work with the celluloid and with the patterns that are endemic in just a one shot uh, of film. And there are definitely still filmmakers around who, who, who are into that practice. So, I mean, found footage simply, I mean, most basically means making films without, without a camera, you know, with a, using, making it on the editing table, working with sound, working with, you know, editing pieces together, but not going out and shooting one's own footage. Yeah, I think I can think of a couple of examples of films that I've seen that probably would fall into the category that are a little more 
I don't want to use the word conventional, but I think it, it, it for me, and the one example I can think of is a documentary called The Atomic Cafe. Which exactly. Can, I mean, there's an example. There's not one, there's no narration. Every every word is from the actual films. There are some films where they start a little bit before. Uh, I can think of one footage of, ter of uh, Harry Truman where they first show him laughing and then suddenly he talks about the nuclear bomb. And and so uh, I could see that as, a, as, a, as completely built on other materials, even though they're all interrelated. The filmmakers made a completely different film based on the material they put together. Yeah, sure. That's I think that's a great example, and we could even call that an example of archivology. I'm not using the term to kind of make boundaries. Right. Uh, so uh, what I mean, Atomic Cafe is a found footage film. This example of archivology, it might also be called an essay film uh, because it is it is very essayistic. It has a, a point to make. <laughs> Uh, but it, as you say, it does not use narration to make that to make that point to make that argument. It uses strictly found footage. So, uh, but obviously, that's more documentary. Uh, when we talk about narrative films, uh, obviously, I would think the documentaries and experimental would be films would be a little bit more obvious ways of using found uh, archivology material. How would a, can you give me an example of a narrative film that would be falling into the category of the material you're talking about? Um, not well. Let me just think. I shouldn't say no. I'm sure somebody's done it. <laughs> no, that's okay. I mean, I just wondered uh, if if you had something in mind. Sorry. No, it's more like I mean, there is a, what I say. What I'm calling the essayistic. So a film like um, Tom Anderson's. Los Angeles plays itself, uh, which is made up of films that were shot in Los Angeles. And he's, he has a voiceover narration and he has a story to tell. And it's all about how the, 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 the film industry has stolen the city that I live in. Um, and, but it's a fabulous film with many, many, many excerpts it's, uh, of, uh, of films that were shot in Hollywood, but it's one, and in, in, he encourages us to look at the backgrounds of these shots rather than the foregrounds and look at the architecture that is used and look at the neighborhoods that are used, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's not a narrative fiction, but it is a, does tell a story. Um, and that's why the, the term essay, essayistic, comes in handy. I also comment in the book briefly on the work of uh, Ken Burns, right. which is also always based on archives. Uh, and he always has a story to tell as well. You know, um, I mean, I'm a little bit critical of, of uh, Ken Burns because it often seems like this, the images are in service to his narrative rather than vice versa. Right. <laughs> but um but he, he's also using found footage. He's using archives. In fact, Ken Burns has access to many of the archives of American history that I think a lot of filmmakers would love to get their hands on. Uh, but he's sort of got the stamp of approval from, you know, Heritage USA uh, that he's only going to say nice things um, about American history. Uh, but, yeah, it's another example. But, yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 a, it's a kind of a blur between the experimental and the documentary, in which fiction, narrative cinema, plays a role, but only in its cut up form. So in Los Angeles plays itself, you do get excerpts from many many you know famous narrative films, uh, like um, The Player is one that that features prominently, Double Indemnity. Uh, 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 sorry, Dragnet, even uh, no, sorry. <laughs> uh, science fiction films and so on. They figure prominently in Tom Anderson's film, but not as full-fledged narratives, only in the excerpts. Right. Yeah, I agree with you about Burns. Um, 
He, you know, you can just about everything he's done, you can watch it, you can make good points about it, and then you can sort of go the other direction and say, yeah, but he does this. And the question is, which which comes first, his narrative or the material? And 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 it's not always obvious as, as to where that goes. I mean, he, he produces incredible amounts of material, but uh, you know, depending on how you look at him, you're talking about on a film level, and obviously historians have their issues with some of the things he's he's said and, and done as well and it's partly related to this whole which came first right right but but then his his version of history has this kind of authority to it because it appears to be illustrated um and in a way this, again there's a sort of this is the other side of archivology is that it can be used for good as well as evil not not that Ken Burns is right. evil, no. but um, it, it can it can kind of illustrate and be used to support arguments that may be, may be questionable and fallacious, you know. Um, whereas the films that I'm writing about, uh, I find that they're more that they're more generated by the images, and the images are allowed. The filmmakers use different tools to allow the images to speak. For themselves, right? Because there's interpretation that you can make um, using the material, or you can just present it as is. But it's the interpretation that you know you have to always consider. Uh, you know whether the interpretation is valid, or or whether there's more to it than than just what you're seeing. Right. Exactly. So um, obviously, uh, this idea of and, and you've pointed out it, the idea of, of using archival material is nothing new. And in fact, it's interesting. We've obviously seen the idea of archivology in, in the written word, obviously, for a long, long time. So it's interesting um, to compare uh, to, to its use in film where it's the, the ideas are the same. You find material and you use it in a different way or, or you illustrate using it. But... Um, would you say that uh, archivology in a film does it is it comparable to the kind of archive work that might have been done in the past in 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 written works and in, in books and and those kind of studies? Yeah, I would like to think so. I mean, the the arcades project that I mentioned before is the best example of that and the most kind of famous example of that. Uh, the use of uh, quotation, um, not. Not a lot of writers get away with, you know, Benjamin does add some of his own prose, but at least 75% of that book, The Arcades Project, is not his own writing. <laughs> it's borrowed, you know. It's, uh, it, it's copied uh, from other people. Um, and I don't know of a lot of writers who've gone to that extent, like word-for-word -word copying. Um, so it, it is something that is lends itself more to cinema and is more long-standing practice in in cinema than in literature. One of the examples that I write about in my book is uh, a film called Paris 1900 by a, a French filmmaker named Nicole Vedrez, uh, and that was released in 1947. And... Uh, She's using a kind of what was called the compilation film uh, methodology that was became prolific during the war uh, to make war films when you know newsreels, right? When you went to the cinema to uh, watch a movie, you got a newsreel that had was compiled of of clips from cameramen that had been taken from all around the world. They'd be mm -hmm. like pushed together and edited together into a compilation. And so she was using that methodology uh, to make her film Paris 1900 in 1947. But yeah, I, I don't, I don't know of a other uh, literary, literary, you know, comparisons actually, you know, mention it. It's funny. The more we talk about this, the more other films just come to mind that I would think would follow. And so obviously, uh, the more you think about it as these concepts, the more you suddenly say to yourself, oh, yeah, I have I have seen 
films and I and this concept isn't completely foreign it's something that makes sense when you when you talk about it this way when you look at it using this idea these ideas that you've developed or, or that you've worked with that suddenly you see it and, and it suddenly make oh well, that makes sense I mean, uh-huh. that, that right. comes from other things and I can sh- suddenly just start thinking one film after another and you know that, that <laughs> clearly we're put together using these concepts exactly yeah 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 so, so uh what other uh, what are your obviously obviously this book just came out so uh you've this has been a, a major part of your life for, for recent times uh i have you got other things in the works that you're thinking about or is it more of a matter that you're still ruminating or or using your classes to come up with <laughs> some other ideas or are you continuing to work on uh, on these kind of concepts related to some of the material you've worked out in the book well, uh, yes, I, I mean, I do feel like I have, there's a lot more to say about archivology and finishing the book was maybe like an arbitrary point because uh, it uh, continues to interest me for sure. And um, I'm hoping to work a little bit more on some Canadian archives and Canadian filmmakers and trying to zero on a little bit more into specific archives and their specific uses uh, in in some upcoming uh, projects, and uh, and so that's that will continue for sure. And I can and I'm going to continue teaching uh, courses on this topic because it's a really fun thing to teach, and I think the students love it. And and it, and and there's always new things to say and new things to learn, going backwards, going forwards, <laughs> looking around us um, in what archivology can can mean. Um, and in addition, I do have a new project that I'm just getting going on, which is kind of surprising, but it may sound surprising, but to me it's not, uh, which is a work on uh, uh, an American actress called Barbara Stanwyck. Mm. And uh, I'm, I've been thinking about this for a long time. I really do. Would, I would like to write a book about her career. Um, and I, I see it, this, that, this project as kind of a parallel or a, a sequel to my book on uh, Japanese film, which was was which was about women's films. The director I wrote about, uh, Natase, wrote he, he specialized in women's films, and uh, I found that, you know, with Stanwyck, I'm interested in her career and her persona and her contribution to Hollywood. Uh, I really think she should be considered as a kind of an auteur in terms of what she contributed and she did not have a lot of agency and 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 but with the little agency that she did have uh, i think she made a big difference and is responsible to some extent for what we know classical hollywood to be but i'm also interested in tracing the different roles that she played over the course of her career um, and how, what kind of story that tells about women in America, um, women uh, through like her career, you know, starts in 1930, and uh, her last her last film was 1985 or 86 with the Thornbirds, which was a miniseries. So she was in silent films. She was on Broadway as a chorus girl and made silent films and ended her career uh, making a TV miniseries, which is a quite impressive arc. Um, and uh, I'm actually teaching a course right now on on her. And once again, I'm learning every day uh, from my students and uh, from trying to trace, trying to tell this kind of story of, of her career that includes so many different genres and so many different kind of types of, of, of women that she played over the course of her career that correspond in really interesting ways to changes in American society and American attitudes towards women and the roles of women in society, etc. 
Yeah, it's funny because you think about, I mean, nowadays, at least here in the United States, we have a number of television stations, that local television stations that uh, show old television shows and occasional movies. For some people, the only thing they probably know Barbara Stanwyck for was The Big Valley, her TV series. And, <laughs> yes. and yet, as you point out, uh, her career goes a lot, you know, goes back so far that... Uh, um, there's there's a lot there, and that's good to hear because, as I say, I've been you know in in doing my interviews, I've interviewed a number of writers who have written about what we would call the older um, um, filmmakers and, and actors, and so it's great that uh, that you've felt that uh, it's worth looking into uh, one of the females during that period and, and to show what their uh, contribution was. Yeah, because the thing is, there there were few, there were very few directors, and so, but that doesn't mean that women were not there, and they right. didn't have a role to play. Uh, and already, I think Stanwyck's name is used, for example, on TV broadcasts like T T TCM has, uh, you know, regular series of Stanwyck movies, and so her, uh, you know, as a brand, I think it, it's it's kind of part of the way retrospectives are designed as much around actors as as around directors and so we should start thinking about that as kind of organizing principle for how we think about hollywood history um as a way of kind of sidestepping the question of the the auteur not that she didn't work with some great auteurs and she didn't learn a lot from them and maybe they learned from her in fact i think they did <laughs> well that's great um so hopefully that will come about in the not too distant future and certainly we can talk about that book if, if when you i've been lucky enough to interview some uh, writers more than once when they've written other things so uh certainly uh when it gets that far we'll hope you know maybe we'll get a chance to talk about that but uh, hopefully people will reach out for this book I, I one of the things that i noticed in in reading it was it's much, you know, the theoretical aspect of it can be, for some people, that can be a little bit daunting, but I really think that uh, you are able to present a number of examples and a number of ways of looking at things that that the whole concept of archivology and, 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 and its importance in, the, in film uh, came through quite well. Great. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, I mean, I'm, I'm finding that uh, my, the, the book I mentioned before, Experimental Ethnography, Again, it sounds like so theoretical, <laughs> but uh, uh, I've been told, you know, by many independent filmmakers who are not necessarily into reading critical theory uh, that they that they've enjoyed it and they find it useful, which is I find very flattering. And I'm, I hope that my work can be of interest to people who are not simply film scholars and film theorists, because I I did try to write it so it wouldn't be too dense. <laughs> well. Thanks again for taking the time. Um, I'm hoping that uh, people uh, will look look for the book and, and hopefully getting a chance to listen to you talk about it in more detail and your concepts will definitely help that. And overall, I really want to appreciate uh, tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Okay, great. Thank you very much for the opportunity. My great thanks to Catherine Russell for her time, and I hope you find her book to be both interesting and informative. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.